This podcast is produced by Unedited. Hello, people, and welcome to the Dreamers Disease podcast. My name is Alex Manzi, and on each episode, we'll hear the story of someone inspirational who's out in the world chasing their dreams and their passions because it's the disease of dreaming and not doing that causes us to live unhappy lives. So we look to draw some inspiration and some wisdom from these guests. On this episode, I'm joined by Vicky Grout, who is one of the most prominent photographers in the UK music scene. And she's got an amazing story and journey. And we spoke about how she became that photographer for the scene, the struggles that she faces being a woman in the music industry, being the right person for the job, why she wants to give back on future projects that she's working on, and branching out from not just music, but also getting into other areas of photography and also where she gets her hustle mentality from. So it's a very interesting listen from someone who's worked so hard, but is so young as well. But before we jump in, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, then head over to iTunes or whatever you listen to your podcast, subscribe and make sure to leave a review so I know what you think. And also follow the Instagram page at the underscore dreamers disease. So without any further ado, let's jump straight in and hear Vicky's story. So my name is Vicky Grout. Um, I'm a 21-year-old photographer. Um, I shoot mainly music, but I do some sort of fashion and street street style stuff as well. I do some street photography also. Um, yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> yeah, you've massively underplayed that a little bit. It's like you, you're like the like music photographer right now, <laughs> and you're only 21. <laughs> just put that one in there. Leave that one to just sit for a bit with everyone listening. <laughs> um, so just, I want to, well, I want to really understand, because we had a conversation um, a couple of months ago about you grow, well, you didn't grow up in Poland, but you were born in Poland and then your family moved over. Mm-hmm. Like, how was that as an experience for you, like being, what were you, like three or four at the time? I was four, yeah. Coming to London, like that young an age, did it have, do you feel like that had a massive impact on you? Do you know what, I think because I was so young, I don't really remember it. Like, mm. I remember the times before I moved. Like, I remember living in Poland, then I remember after that. But I don't really remember the journey or the kind of impact that it had on me. I think because I started school here in, like, year one. So, I like, I, I skipped reception. I started in year one, but it just it felt kind of normal, I guess. I think the only thing, really, is that, obviously, I'm a first-generation immigrant, but I do hide in plain sight. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So people might not think that I'm Polish or that I'm an immigrant or whatever, and they might make certain comments, and it's like, yeah, can't yeah. really run, but they don't realise that that applies to me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's that's the only thing, really. Um, and even though I am an immigrant, I might not face the struggles that other immigrants might face. Yeah. Um, ones that, like, for instance, ones that don't have English as, the, as their first language, or maybe moved here later in life. Um, so I think, yeah, I think I was definitely able to kind of, what's the word, adapt yeah. a lot easier. But do, you, do you see those elements then in, in your parents? I guess, I'm guessing that English wasn't their first language. My dad's actually English. Okay. So I'm actually only half Polish. Okay. Um, so, and my dad actually bought the house that we moved to before I was born. So he was kind mm. of back and forth anyway. But with my mum, English wasn't their first language. Um, and I know that when we first moved to London or to England, um, English was actually my first language, even mm. when I lived there in Poland. Okay. So I was already so speaking. preparing you from early. I was already <laughs> speaking two languages from, from birth, basically. Yeah. But my mum, I remember when we first moved and I was in, in year one, um, she did have to kind of, I remember she was taking like evening English classes and stuff. She already spoke a bit of English, mm. but in order to, to work here, obviously there is a stigma around being Polish and trying to find yeah. jobs here. So she definitely wanted to, to improve her English in order to get a job here. Yeah. yeah. 
So, and, and so I guess like, because one thing that I find really interesting about you is, and we're going to cover this hopefully a lot more in depth later, but yeah. the hustle that you've kind of done throughout the years, is that something that you feel maybe came from, you know, maybe your mum or your dad and seeing them, particularly your mum having to move to a new country and adapt to that country and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to learn English and all those kind of things. Do you feel like that could have come down from them? I'm honest, not really. I feel like my mum's always wanted me to go down the more traditional educational route. Because um, my mum went to uni quite late in life. It was when it was after she'd moved here. Um, and she went to uni in her 40s and like found her calling of like being a nurse and was like, this is the best thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. Like she's made like her best friends for life at uni. So she feels like that was what I should have done. Whereas my dad didn't even do his GCSEs. You know, he left school at 15 and has just worked his way up. Yeah. Um, and it was definitely a case of, you know, who you know, not what you know of him. Um, but he just managed to wing it and did yeah. a sick job of it. Um, but it was more my dad that kind of pushed me to do what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and even if it was to go down the apprenticeship route or internship, like he, he never really saw uni as a, as a necessary path for Fruit, me. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, and is that like, for you then, is that something that having that support at home, has that massively benefited you? Or do you feel like you would have just done it anyway? I think I would have done it anyway. And again, I didn't really have that support from my mum from the start. Um, and even now she still worries, like, oh, like, what are you doing? Like, are you, are you doing okay? You know, I think maybe because, maybe because she's not necessarily a creative person, maybe she doesn't understand how these things work and how you can make money off certain industries, you know? Um, but, in saying that, she also never stopped me from doing anything. Yeah. Although she was, you know, she was wary and was like questioning it. She never tried to tell me, you can't do this. Yeah. Just maybe, you know, have you thought about this? Maybe you shouldn't do that, but never, you're not allowed to do yeah, this, you yeah. know? And were you always more into like the creative subjects at school as yeah, well? Yeah, always. Even from when I was about three years old, like I did dance mm. for like 13 years. I've always liked to do art. Um, I did that like, textiles in school as well. Um, yeah, I was never, I was never hugely academic. Um, I just find it quite boring. Um, I like English, but yeah. everything else, even things that like I tried to study for, I'd still come out with with a like with a D, and I'm just like this yeah. is not for me. Like I tried to do psychology, and even though I found it so interesting, I'm just like I, just, I can't. It's it's not for me. So I've always ended up doing more kind of creative subjects. Um, and I actually realized I actually found out when I was 18 because when I was at uni. I only did a foundation year at uni, so I didn't do a full degree, but um, they made me do a dyslexia test, mm. did the test. I wasn't dyslexic, but the doctor was just like, why don't you answer these questions on ADD? Yeah. And literally every single thing applied to me. Really? And so, yeah, so at like 18, I was finally diagnosed with ADHD and I'm just like, my life makes so much sense now. <laughs> and I think maybe that's why I was always more inclined to kind of be more creative. Yeah, um, where your brain can kind of just get all of that yeah. momentum out and mm -hmm. onto something or into something yeah yeah that's do you know i, I think i should do a test like that <laughs> do you know what it's it's relieving it's nice because i feel like at school i was always i was always in trouble but i didn't know yeah. why you know teachers hated me i could never sit with my friends mm. i was always a distraction and getting distracted yeah and um i don't know it's just a sense of clarity and closure i guess yeah. and i think if you feel like you struggle with certain things for instance, with me, like I struggle with like completing tasks or like time management or just like concentration. Um, I think once you can pinpoint something and you understand it, mm. it's 
easier to deal with it. Yeah. But also, so, do, yeah. do you not feel that that's a bit of a, um, just a general problem, I guess, with our generation and like mm -hmm. the younger generation coming through? Because there are so many things that grab our attention at once that it's easier to kind of slip into that. This is the thing, and especially in this generation and the whole social media generation, I think for people like me, people that have ADHD or are more inclined to be um, attention deficit, mm. it, is, it is harder. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely more distractions. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, so then at, w at what point then did you start to discover your passion for photography and picking up the camera? Um, initially, I was probably about nine or 10. And I think my godmother had come to visit and she had like a DSLR. Mm. And I just loved taking pictures of it, whether it was like pictures of my cat or like pictures in the garden of like the flowers and stuff. I just mm. really liked the way the images came out. And that was probably, that's probably like my earliest memory of me actually enjoying taking photos yeah. and liking how the final outcome looks, that makes sense. Um, so then for my 11th birthday, um, I asked for like a little bridge camera. Mm. Um, and I had that again, just taking dumb photos of like my cats and like going to the park and like taking like edgy pictures of trees yeah, they're all yeah. like like horizontal and like diagonal and stuff um thinking I was being really creative but um but I think it wasn't until I was about 13 that I actually started taking pictures a bit more seriously when I found my dad's old family camera mm. and it was just like a little film point and shoot like holiday camera essentially yeah. um, and I found it in a drawer um and I just started using it just for I guess the sort of things that people would post on their Instagram now, just the, the, the sort of stuff that you take on your phone, it'll yeah. be, you know, photos of friends or just like random stuff that I'm doing. It wasn't, it wasn't thought out portraits or specific things. Yeah, it was yeah. just whatever I was doing. Um, and I had the, I had like a Flickr account when Flickr was a thing. Yeah. Um, it still kind of is. And Tumblr. Yeah. Is Flickr still happening? It kind of. Is it? Okay. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and I put my photos on there um, just for myself really. Yeah. Just so I had something to look at. Um, and I did that for for a while, but I guess all my, all the money that I would get from my part-time job would all go on film. Mm. And I was just like, okay, I'm spending all my money on this. I enjoy it, but what am I really getting from this? I never really thought that I could get a career yeah. in photography. I didn't think that'd be possible. Um, so when I was in college, I did graphic design. Then I did a foundation at uni, also doing graphic design, thinking that would be a more kind of stable career yeah. path. Um, but I think it was actually the summer before I did my foundation um, that I was just raving all the time. Even in the years leading up to that, I was going to a lot of gigs and shows and stuff. And I would, like, I'd always take my little film point and shoot. Um, but it was when I was about 17 and I started raving properly. I was going to, I think in the early days, it was mm. mainly like Swamp 81, yeah. Hyperdub, yeah. then eventually Butters, and then eventually more kind of grime nights. And um in the early days, I wouldn't even take my camera. I would just go and just enjoy myself yeah. and kind of get to know the artists. And then slowly I'd take my camera just so that I'd have something to look back on afterwards. Um, and it kind of just slowly snowballed from there. Um, and it was actually after my foundation that I realized that maybe I don't want to do a degree in graphic design. Mm. Maybe I just want to see where this goes. And I haven't really looked yeah. back since. <laughs> and, and did those moments of like, because I find going to certain events and seeing the same people and the same artists and, you know, people within the industry all the time, it helps kind of establish a connection with them. So do you feel like that, that was a real foundation for you or how much of a foundation was it to then 
push that forward and start to you know take the portraits and start to like reach out to these people i think i think it is important to have a not not only a relationship with the subject that you were shooting but to for them to feel comfortable around you and i think in those early days when I wasn't even taking my camera, I didn't realise that I was networking, but I was. Mm. That's exactly what I was doing. But really, I was just fangirling. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I was um, I was literally just a fan of the music or whatever they did and just wanted to, to speak to them and let them know that. And then, obviously, I became a familiar face within that scene. Um, so then people felt comfortable then coming to me and being like, oh, I actually need some new headshots or I need some photos for my rave next weekend. Like, yeah. can you do it? And it was, um, it was quite an organic process I think so would you say it's it was kind of an accidental thing then I suppose of you kind of falling into the grime scene as it was you know back then before it's kind of obviously developed so much over the last few yeah. years it was a kind of real accidental thing just out of passion of going to the events and doing 100% like know. I never really set out to to document it or to be like the grime photographer yeah. you know like I never really wanted that it was literally me just appreciating what the artist did and what they created and um, kind of wanting to almost give something back to them as well. Yeah, and what was the moment where you kind of really realized that photography could become a, a job and a career and a life for you? Mm. Um, I think it was quite a gradual thing, but it was, because after my foundation, I was still working part-time for a little bit. I was working at, um, I was just working at like, a, like a sneaker store, but I actually ended up leaving there and trying to pursue it as like a full-time mm. thing. And um, I haven't had to go back there, so... Yeah, it's worked out yeah, all right so it's worked far. out all right. <laughs> but then, because one thing I find really interesting, right, is obviously, you know, you've taken so many photos up until the point where, you know, your work's starting to get recognised and then you're starting to be able to go and, you know, charge for doing shoots and, and you mm -hmm. know, collaborating with brands and artists and whatever. But, like, if you... Is there one picture in particular that is like was, like, the moment that kind of sparked all of that for you? Yeah, I think so. There's um, there's one photo of Skepta, which ended up being the artwork for the shutdown single. Yeah, the black and white one. Black and white with the Nazimazar jacket yeah, with the yeah. no fear. Yeah, um, I think it was originally gradually, or I think I just made up a word there, originally gradually, but no, I think it was already slowly starting to happen before that. Yeah, but I think that photo kind of. Set it off, definitely. Set off, yeah. yeah. And it was, a, it was a good time as well because that, I guess, was like, what, 2015, 14 maybe? When yeah, so it was around the end of 2014, start of 2015, when things started to, yeah. Yeah, and then was that a point, like, how much of a difference did it make other than your work obviously getting out there? Mm -hmm. Like, for you personally, in terms of people coming to you, how much difference did that image make to you know, pushing you forward in, in like a career kind of sense? I think it was that plus the fact that I was generally shooting most artists in the grime scene around that time. But I think, as you also said, it almost happened accidentally. Mm. Um, I think I kind of was quite lucky in the sense that I accidentally managed to time almost like the resurgence of grime, like the, the second wave, let's say. Mm. Um, and I think with with grime's kind of second growth, I think because I was one of the few people documenting it from so early on, I kind of happened to grow with it. Mm. Yeah, and what was it about those raves that you really kind of, I guess, kept going back to? What What was it about them that you just wanted to be there and wanted to capture them? And To be honest, I was such a little raver, especially when yeah. I was 17, but it was definitely the energy. 
And I think what you don't get from other raves is the kind of like the MC cipher aspect of it as well. Mm. And this like, I think just the unpredictability of it as well. Um, but yeah, definitely there's like, I don't really think you can compare a grime rave to anything else. Mm. Yeah, energy's just too high, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's a different <laughs> experience. Keep saying to to mix it in here that I need to take him to a proper yeah a proper gig. I keep saying. And this is the thing as well. The ones that I was going to at the time were all tiny, tiny raves. Yeah. It was either in like Visions or an Alibi. Yeah. And when it's in such a little sweat box, everything's just amplified. You know. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. And so what I want to tr- try and understand then is like, once your work has now got out there, mm-hmm. who is or. I don't know, was there a first brand that approached you or was there a first artist that approached you to say, can you come and do some shots with me? Like, how did that kind of snowball from there? So the first artist press shots that I did were for Faze Miyake. Yeah. And that was from just bumping into him at raves probably about three or four times. And I think the first time it was probably me going up to, like, me going up to him and being like, you Faze Miyake. Yeah. And he'd be like, yeah. <laughs> And then just like seeing him at different events and just like chatting really. Um, and then I think I must have like taken some photos at a rave and put it up on like my site or on my Instagram or something. And then I saw him at another event and he was just like, yo, I really like your work. I didn't know you're a photographer. I'm just like, I'm not really, I just take pictures sometimes. But, um, and he was like, yeah, like I need some pressure. It's like, what are you saying? Are you down? And I was just like, defo. And I think it kind of gradually went from there. Yeah. And then it was more artists and more. Yeah. What was the first brand that reached out to you? First big-ish brand, probably Nike. Mm. Um, I remember it was a Nike football football campaign. Um, and I remember I actually... I think I only shot film up until that point. And um, I knew that this had to be digital. And I knew that I needed a good camera for this. So they told me how much they would pay me beforehand. And I'm just like, okay, if I get this camera on finance, yeah. I can pay it off with that payment so yeah that was the first like big job that I got and that worked out in the end yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was the camera you went for like what was the first digital camera you bought oh uh, the first digital camera that I had was a Canon 60D yeah I remember I got one second hand for like 300 pounds yeah um but because I was doing a lot of obviously live event stuff um I was shooting a lot in low light and everyone else around me was shooting on either like a 6D or like a 5D Mark III or whatever. And everyone's getting these sick photos in low yeah. light and I'm just getting just like a black image and I'm like, I need to upgrade. Yeah. Sadly, so I feel like, especially when it comes to digital, it is annoying because I feel like you kind of are kind of pressured to try and get like the latest model or the best thing. I feel like with film, you can shoot on anything and it can look sick and you yeah. can make it work because different film cameras are good for different things whereas I feel like with digital there's this pressure to like get like the new one like the best digital camera mm. yeah so I kind of had to do that in the end yeah. <laughs> it's because people want the best quality photos don't they and they mm-hmm. want to feel like they're getting I guess their money's worth but like yeah. I said with film each film camera even even like model by model like you can have one camera and another camera exact same model but the photos could be slightly different just because yeah. of the way you know they're made mm-hmm. um but what is, it, what is it that you like about shooting on film? Because I know you, you that's your preference mm-hmm. um, from when we've worked together. But what is it that you just prefer a lot more about using it? So when I first started doing photography, I started on film. Um, I just had like a little point and shoot, then went to like a film SLR. Um, I'd always kind of just preferred the look of film 
and when I was only shooting a film, I didn't really want to switch to digital because I was just like, I, th I didn't like the thought of having to process my images to make them look a certain way. You know, when you shoot on film, you can choose different types of film that have a natural grade to them. So when you get the film processed, mm. that's just how it looks already. Yeah. Um, might have to do some, some tweaking, but the color grade's there. Um, and I feel like there is a certain, I don't know, like a certain, certain character to film that is quite hard to replicate. I've seen some people do it quite well. I haven't really been able to do it. Um, and this isn't to say that film is better than digital. This is literally just a personal preference. Yeah. Um, but I think there's something quite exciting about shooting film, not knowing what you've shot and then getting it developed and then seeing the outcome. And I think since I've been shooting more and the more confident that I've been with my shooting, it's, it's less scary. You know, at the mm. start when I didn't really know how a camera worked and I would just kind of shoot on like any setting and hope for the best, then, you know, 30% of what I got back was actually usable yeah. um but obviously i think what it was was when i switched to digital for a bit it actually made me learn how a camera worked and i like i actually know it inside out now basically like when it comes to like aperture shutter speed film speed before that you'd, you'd say those words to me and i literally just blank out like yeah. i wouldn't know what that meant um but i think it was shooting digital and kind of seeing what each change made on this on the actual screen yeah. then going back to film and kind of having the confidence to to run with it yeah. So you completely self-taught then when it comes yeah. to like everything. And did, yeah. Did you like? Did you sit and watch YouTube videos, or was it literally just, you know, going out there and shoot, and then just trying to work out what everything meant? The YouTube videos came later. So in the beginning, it was literally just me picking up a camera, figuring out how it worked. Like I'd just get my cameras off eBay, and then just go out and shooting. Really, um, it was more so when I switched to digital. I'd watch YouTube videos on how to edit my photos using like Lightroom and Photoshop and stuff. Mm. I would watch videos on how to do that. And then when I then kind of went back to film and I started shooting medium format, I would watch YouTube videos on how to operate the camera. Cause if you look at a medium format camera, it's just a big box. Like you don't yeah. know what the hell is going on. So I um I had to watch some videos just to see like where to put the battery in, how to turn it on, how to do that. But um, in terms of like the stylistic aspect of shooting, just trial and error really. And mm. I guess just practice and I mean, I've probably, I've been shooting for about seven or eight years now. You know, started out as a hobby and it's been more professional full-time in the last couple of years. But I think if you, if you do something continuously, then you'll definitely start to develop your own style. Yeah. And what struggles have you faced so far? Struggles? Any, yeah. Um, I think one struggle, I think as a female photographer... I think I do struggle sometimes being taken seriously. Yeah. Maybe not outwardly. Maybe people think that everything's everything's calm, but when it comes to having certain meetings or having certain discussions with like clients or like bigger brands and stuff, I feel like I don't have that respect yet. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But I also I also do bear in mind that I am quite young as well. So I'm, maybe I will get that. I don't know if it's if it's a female thing or if it's an age thing, mm. but I do struggle with that sometimes. Um, but also I do have to appreciate that I am in a better position than most. And this is something that I kind of had to come to terms with um, in terms of like my own personal growth. Because obviously I'm aware that I am a white person documenting black culture. Mm. But um, at, at, at some point I, I actually had to come to terms with the fact that my part of my success is due to the fact that I am white. Mm. And I am almost a palatable way of, of selling the genre and making it mainstream, which... It's hard to come to terms with. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like 
it also kind of gives you an idea of how the industry really works. Yeah. And it's not nice. Yeah. You know? How, on that note then, how do like, I guess, haters or, you know, internet trolls affect you? Because I remember maybe like a couple of years ago, there were some tweets that people have dug up from your past of mm-hmm. like you, I can't even remember what they said, but it's mm-hmm. people trying to like pull you down from where you are because yeah. you, you are doing so well. People mm-hmm. are then, which I guess is a compliment in itself and the yeah. fact that you're obviously doing quite well that people want to try and do that. But mm-hmm. how does how does that then affect you when people are kind of dismissing your work and like the authenticity of you actually being passionate about mm-hmm. the music and the scene? Yeah. Thing is though, is that with those tweets, like the people that did actually like the people that did actually dig them up made a valid point at digging them up because mm. even though those tweets were from a few years ago, they were from a very young me, but also a very ignorant and uneducated me. Mm. But I think that a part of everybody's journey is to unlearn the things that society has taught you and to educate yourself. And I think that's a journey that everybody has to go through. And even though people did dig those up, it's important to to address those things. And mm. I think that, as you see, there's a pattern. People are digging up things on everybody. You know, people yeah. are digging up tweets that Stormzy said, that JME has said. Yeah. And if you're in a position where you have a voice or you can have an opinion, there are going to be people that are going to try and dig things up on you. And I think it is important to, as I said, to address that and... And to show that it is important to to grow as a person, really. Mm. But I think the main thing is to know that everyone has a platform and to use that platform to help educate others, basically. Yeah. So for you, what's kind of, what's been the biggest lesson so far in either, you know, the way you had to adapt and change and grow like you've just spoken Mm -hmm. about or in the way you've had to approach your work, working with big companies or, you know, it could be anything. What would be one of the biggest things you've learned? I think even before, even I think even before those tweets, I was already on a kind of educational journey, mm. you know, and um, that was almost like a like a trigger to better myself even more. If that mm. makes sense, but yeah, it's kind of just made me kind of rethink everything, but also question everything, mm. um, question everything that comes your way, um, question you know if somebody approaches you with a certain job, you know, are you the right person for that job? For instance, there was a while back when um, I got asked to shoot an editorial, um, which was the theme of the editorial was the Black Panther Party. Mm. And it was like a Black Panther themed editorial. um, And they even suggested a model that they wanted for it. And um, even the model was was light skinned. And I said to them, I was just like, firstly, I think it would be of benefit to use perhaps a dark skinned model if this is the the issue that you're trying to put across, but also I'm not the person to shoot this, mm. you know. And I actually listed like a like a selection of of women of color who are photographers that would be better suited for that job. That's just one example, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and also, I've definitely been trying to move away from this idea that I am like the go-to grime yeah. photographer because um, obviously I started shooting grime when I was about 18, you know. So. I went into it with like completely good intentions. You know, literally it was me being passionate about it and having a love for it. Um, as I kind of got older and matured, I realized the complications that come with that mm. and that it can be seen as problematic. Um, and this is why when I do things now, I make sure that I'm not exploitative and that I do it justice yeah. and that I am 
the right person for that job. Yeah. And is there any jobs that you've kind of gone for in a sense of, you know, you might have been shortlisted that you really, really wanted mm-hmm. and you didn't get? Have you had those moments? I have had those moments. Um, there was actually a big brand that I was optioned for. Um, I actually went in for a meeting with the creative agency that were commissioning it. And it was the creative agency that were asked to submit a selection of photographers. And they asked me to come in for a meeting. Um, and I got like a portfolio printed. I got like a physical book done for this meeting. Um, and they were like, oh, like, can you put together a treatment? And then we'll let you know. Um, obviously, like I spent hours on this treatment. Sadly, I didn't get it in the end. But that's going to happen multiple times throughout everyone's career you know writing treatments and presenting ideas to not get the job is just part of the process Mm. um and the more treatments that you do the better you'll get at making treatments so um there has been a couple times where i have been optioned for things and i haven't got it but i don't take it personally or think Mm. oh maybe i'm not i'm not good enough or whatever maybe i just wasn't right for that particular job you know but then there might be another job that i'm perfect for you know um and that's the thing, I think, as creatives, I think people tend to kind of, I think people tend to be afraid to put their work out in fear of rejection, or they feel like they're not good enough, or they feel that they get, you know, bad criticism or whatever. But I think we can't afford to be perfectionists. Mm. And I think that we need to just get our work out. And even if we do a bad project, or if it's not received well, whatever, like we learn from that. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I think that's a very powerful message as well because I, I think like the the fear of rejection is a massive thing for for us and our generation and you know all the younger kids that are coming through because everyone just kind of puts themselves through it for no reason, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So I think being able to, I guess, experience that through your work in a way in terms of not being accepted for jobs or whatever, yeah. you're kind of having to to learn that acceptance yeah. of it it's but like also, tortured artist yeah complex but, <laughs> exactly but you've it's part and parcel of it mm-hmm. you know if you like you said if you want to be a creative at the end of the day somewhere along the line you're gonna you're gonna be dealt a lot more no's than you are yeses so you have to learn to adapt to that and and kind of accept it a bit mm-hmm. isn't it like you really touched on being like a woman in the kind of grime scene but mm-hmm. like have there ever been situations where that's kind of felt a bit uncomfortable for you because obviously there's a lot of i guess people from the outside might suggest or make their own kind of opinions on things and be like oh this person and that person have done this or whatever mm-hmm. have you ever like had those situations not necessarily been in one but mm-hmm. like people assuming mm-hmm. that you know certain situations are happening within the scene and with the artist that you're with or whatever yeah do you know what it is i haven't had it for a couple of years but i think maybe towards the start and it wasn't even a big thing um just a couple couple kids on Twitter. Mm. I remember some some kid tweet me saying, like, have you beat Novelist? And I was like, no, but like, where did this come from? Yeah. Um, and I think there was probably like one other comment that was just like, stupid. But it's just like, yeah. I think, I don't know, I think maybe early on, maybe pe- maybe some people didn't like the fact that I, that I was a young girl that was able to kind of make my way up in the industry just based on my skills yeah, and, and talent. And um, I think people always try and bring down women in industries by assuming that they're being someone or sucking off someone or yeah. doing doing something in order to 
to yeah like playing the game to work their way to the top kind yeah. of thing yeah which um, yeah definitely isn't the case <laughs> yeah and it, so what what do you think then like just because it seems to be a bit of a problem in general within the music scene and you know way beyond that in sort of most creative industries but mm -hmm. like what, what would you like to see happen to kind of improve female representation in those industries particularly music um I think I think we definitely need to see more kind of women maybe in like manager positions or in positions that are higher up that actually have have more power and like even if we already have that people still don't really give them the respect that they deserve mm. um I feel like there's still there's still an imbalance um especially in the music scene that like people don't want to be given directions by women mm. um and that like being told what to do by women mm. um which is an issue yeah but it's crazy as well because like to me like thinking about artists who have women as managers or as very important roles on their team two that come to mind for me straight away are lethal bizzle mm -hmm. and skepta and mm -hmm. they're probably two of the most successful uk artists from our world and our scene mm -hmm. and they've got these you know powerful women behind them mm -hmm. But I don't feel like they're celebrated enough when it comes to the artist. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And it's not—it's obviously not the artist's fault. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. I just mean, in the broader sense of things, mm -hmm. like I don't feel like we have that celebration. I think that's the thing. I think if you're not the artist, then you're not in the spotlight. You know, mm. if an artist has like a really powerful team behind them, chances are you're not going to see them or hear from them. Um, but maybe that's how they how they prefer it. Yeah. Maybe they prefer to move in the shadows. And plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair dues because it's working for them, right? Um, so, like, with this new new wave of like UK MCs and you know, with all the Afro bashment stuff and mm -hmm. all the kind of worlds are now kind of bringing out of it, like, where do you think it's going to go? Where would you like it to go? Because it's it's pushing that kind of global. I mean, the, the biggest thing we've seen was obviously um, Big Shaq, mm -hmm. Michael Dapper, like that fully went global yeah like, but do you feel like the rest of the scene can follow now that although you know that was kind of not a a serious record in mm. the sense that Michael Dapper's not trying to be a music artist it was just something that you know has happened very well and yeah. you know happened in a moment of time and everyone kind of appreciated it but do you feel like you know the skeptics have done their bit but do you feel like the rest of that UK scene can start to really push through and take it to a global sound and not just this is a UK thing? I don't know. I feel like we need to stop measuring success by like by it being appreciated from the States, if mm. that makes sense. I feel like mm. we don't need their validation to actually measure our success. Um, and I think that's what's happening, really. I feel like we only feel like an artist has, has gone clear once like Drake has co-signed them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like the thing with Michael Dapper as well, because that video went so viral across America, automatically they're just going to know it. Yeah. You know, I was in LA in November and I was showing one of my friends that I was showing him some like some UK artists, didn't know who they were, but then I, I played him Big Shaq and he knew the words. Yeah. You know, ev everyone knows like the song and who that is, but this is the thing. I think that we need to stop thinking that we need to be accepted by America. Yeah. I feel like we need to focus on honing our own sound, really. I feel like grime was our own sound. But no one cares about grime anymore. Mm. You know, grime had its wave and people don't really care about it anymore. People think 
that things are growing. People think that, you know, Jay Huss mm. and whoever are growing, but this is just people that are using it as like a like a hype words yeah, when like really label, they're kind of like they're kind of just yeah. umbrellaing all UK music um, and not really giving the artist credit. But I feel like it's come full circle. I feel like a lot of UK music is trying to sound American in order to be accepted by it. Yeah, but I don't think we need that at all. Would you Would you think then would determine success for the music scene? I think with someone like Stormzy who has such a huge connection with the youth and community, I think that determines success. Mm. You know, when when Kins on the Block are playing someone's songs every day, when they've actually reached such a, like a wide range of people, that's, mm. I think that's success. Yeah. Especially when you're a role model as well. I feel like there's certain artists that have, have blown in the past, um, but they were never really role models. And I feel like we're, we're lacking in, in positive role models. And yeah. I definitely think that Stormzy is one of them. Yeah, I feel like the influence as well, that the likes of him and, you know, seeing, you know, like Skepta as well, you know, I'll keep going back to those two because they're the kind of biggest mm -hmm. that we've got at the minute. That the influence they've got as well, you know, you see Stormzy, you know, talking a lot about politics and mm -hmm. raising issues and, and raising awareness of issues that need to be made, people need to be made aware of. Yeah. That's, for me, is the success as well. Yeah. As well as, like, walking down the road and nine out of ten cars is playing yeah. British music. Like, that, for me, is success. Because yeah. that was not happening no. five, six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, pretty incredible to see. What I want to know then, as someone who's, like, so involved in that music world and the kind of fashion stuff mm -hmm. that you're trying to get into. If you could pick like an ideal scenario, like shoot wise mm -hmm. with a artist or a group of artists and a brand or a magazine or a whatever, mm -hmm. what would it be? I'm not going to say magazines. That's where it gets political. But in terms of artists, I feel like I say this all the time, but I still haven't shot Wiley properly. Really? Um, but I think the, the best kind of shoot with the artist would be, I think just to follow them around for a day, you know, see what they get up to, document mm -hmm. their kind of day to day, you know, their area where they like to, where they like to spend their time, what they like to do. Um, I think the most important photograph is when you get a, a piece of someone's character or personality mm -hmm. or insight into to them as a person. Mm. And what's the best way to bring that out in, within a photo? I think the subject, or the person needs to feel comfortable. I think that's the main thing. I feel like there's no right or wrong way to do that really. Um, I think maybe because I'm pretty non non threatening, <laughs> um, and I like I don't really shut up either. I tend to kind of talk a lot mm. to the point where the person just has to laugh. Yeah. Um, but I always try and make sure that the person feels comfortable. Because yeah. there's nothing worse than like a photo where you can see someone's visibly uncomfortable, unless that's what you're going for, unless you're trying to convey a certain message with that. But if that's not what you're going for, then it's not ideal. Yeah. I want to bring it back to photography a little bit. Mm -hmm. What one piece of advice would you give to someone who's like a budding photographer or wants to start to pick up a camera and get into photography as a, as a hobby or, or mm -hmm. as a job? Um, I think the most important thing is to find something that you're passionate about because there's nothing worse than a photo where you can tell the person doesn't care about what they're shooting in the slightest. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's, there's the kind of 
a pattern of people kind of doing things because they feel like it's the right or cool thing to do because they think they will get likes or retweets or mm. whatever. And I think I think it's definitely important to to know what you're passionate about and what you actually want to document. Even if it's not just one thing, even if there's a series of things and you can't make your mind up, just things that you like, whether it's football or music or dance or nature. Um, I think it's important to just go and just shoot the hell out of it. Mm. You know, even if you don't post it all, just so that you've got that archive and that you're you're honing your your craft and your and your own style. Um, but the most important thing is definitely shoot shoot something that you're passionate about because it you can definitely see it in the photo. Yeah. It definitely well, shows through. Like they say, a uh, picture speaks a thousand words, whatever yeah. it is. Well, there you go. <laughs> the old, uh, whatever you call it, saying. Um, and then also, how important is like the post, I'm going to call it post-production, the post-edit or whatever. Post-process, yeah. Yeah, the post like, how important is the editing for you, particularly, you know, the difference between film and digital? Mm-hmm. Is that a massive part of it? Or is it, you know, you've shot what you've shot mm-hmm. and that's what you, you have to deal with? Um, so... It definitely does differ between film and digital. When I shoot film, more time I don't really do anything with the image. You know, depending on what lab I go to, if it's if, if it's a, a good quality lab and the scans are scans are good, um, I don't really do much to it. I might do a little bit of exposure tweaking, or if the person wants something retouched, I might fix something. But most of the time, I tend to not retouch mm. my images. I tend to keep them quite natural and quite raw. Whereas as opposed to with digital. You have to edit, yeah. you know, even if it's just putting a grade on it, you know, you can't, I mean, again, this is, this is my opinion, you know, I'm sure there's some people that literally just shoot in raw and just bang yeah. it up the way that it is. But um, when you shoot it like a, a digital file, the original file is going to be very flat. You do need to lift certain yeah. parts of it um, in order for it to look good. Um, whether you want to retouch or alter anything is, is an additional thing, you yeah. know. But you definitely need to color grade it. Whereas, as I said earlier, like with film, it's already it's already been done. It's already like the chemicals in in the film and in the developer do it already. And that's yeah. why I love film so much. Yeah, well, it's like we were saying before about you know each camera, film camera will have that kind of mm-hmm. nice texture to the photo. Different and, film camera, different mm. film you choose to shoot. Yeah. You know, all all factors in. Yeah, and if you got a lab you go to, yes, that's, that's or whether true. you de- develop and scan yourself. So yeah, yeah. have you got any? editing tips that someone who who may be listening can take away um in terms of editing tips i think that's all down to the individual photographer's personal style um but when i shot digital because i shot film before i always tried to edit my photos to look a bit filmy Mm. um so i always took the contrast down a little bit added some grain took the saturation out a little bit um just so that it didn't look too sharp it didn't look too digital um but that's just like i think that was just how i liked to see yeah. it personally but definitely if you if you're struggling with editing or don't know how to edit definitely watch youtube videos because that helped with yeah. me um i use lightroom um which is pretty good for, for doing that especially if you're editing in bulk you can actually set a preset color grade and save it Oh, so nice. that you can go back to it and it automatically puts it on all your photos. So yeah. you can almost make your own kind of filter, yeah. which is good. So that's, it's quite handy to, like I said, edit in bulk or edit on the move or anything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Cool. But it's funny because like, I I mean, I don't take loads of photos, don't get me wrong, but when I do go on yeah. like a little photography one, and when I do edit mine, I do very similar. I, I knock up the 
actually put the contrast up a little bit mm -hmm. and then I'll maybe bring the the um, saturation down mm -hmm. and then play the exposure to kind of mm -hmm. depending mm -hmm. on how bright or not it is. Tell you what actually, probably shouldn't be saying this because they're not paying me, but Visco yeah. do really nice film yeah. presets. Yeah. So it's a phone app, but you can also get it for your desktop. Now you have to pay for it, it's mm -hmm. not free. But um, you can get different packs, so you can get them all individually. But that's what I used mm. when I shot digital. Um, and there's actually different packs that almost like mimic different types of film. So the type of film that I would shoot when I shoot film, there would be a preset for that. So I would almost try and match it yeah. when I shot digital. So check but out yeah, Visco. And that's Visco, V-S-C-O, isn't it? Yeah. Cool. Um, and then for, so, for so I'm a budding photographer. Um, I've got my camera. I've done everything you just said. I've done my editing. I'm happy with my photos. Mm -hmm. What is the best way for me to get my work out there? Firstly, Instagram, yeah. 100%. Um, Instagram has definitely helped me with getting my work out there. Um, you know, I've got my email in my bio, and so I get a lot of my work coming in directly. I'm guessing through people that have come across my Instagram and can just get my email direct. Um, but yeah, definitely Instagram, because not only that, the fact that people can follow you, they stay updated with your work whenever you post something new, so that's definitely good. Um, I do also have a website. I think it is good to have a website. Um, I didn't actually realize how much traction I got through my website until I got um, got like a Google Analytics yeah. page. Oh really? Um, and I also had like a like an email form on my website. And when people email me through that, it comes up in a different layout, so I can tell when it's through my website. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And I've actually been getting quite a few through that, and I didn't realize how much traction I'd actually be getting yeah. through the website itself and you can also see whether people you know are kind of going to the link through another site or whether they're just literally typing it out or finding it through Google um, and it's interesting to see that because for ages I didn't even have a website I had one yeah. years ago didn't like the layout and then I just couldn't decide on anything this is what I was saying earlier about not being a perfectionist yeah, yeah. it's good to not be a perfectionist yeah. and eventually I was just like you know what I'm just gonna slap on slap on this template and just run with it um and yeah so i think it's good to have an instagram but also have a website to accompany it mm. and with what i do with my instagram is i tend to basically put everything out on my instagram or most things but my website i literally just save for the best or like my favorite my favorite things yeah to like really showcase the best of the best isn't it mm -hmm. um cool and then what's your biggest fear in life my biggest fear in life that's scary apart um, from dying which most people say and I have lots of fears. My fears don't really concern me as an individual. I don't know. It's fears about society and the world. Like what? I don't know, I just don't have much hope. Why? <laughs> um, I don't know, I just feel like as much as we use our platforms and as much as we try and educate others, even if we do educate others and help kind of other people to understand each other better, I still think there are certain powers in place that are bigger than us. Mm. But it is important to kind of reach out to more people. And I think we are getting there in a community sense. Yeah. But I don't, I'm, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure what the timescale will be to yeah. reach it in a bigger sense. And do you think we're ever going to see that cultural shift in our lifetimes? Um, I think so. I think, especially in America, where you know, it is foreseen that in the next few years, white people will become the minority. And I know that that scares a lot of people, but I'm almost excited to see that, mm. you know, um, 
I think it'll be it'll be interesting to see how these kind of like white nationalists react to that once they are the minority. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it's a weird one. <laughs> no, no, I know, I know what you're saying. There are there is you know we're we're especially now we're going through such a turbulent time with mm-hmm. politics and you know yeah. Brexit and you know the rest of it. It's it does. And this is the thing that, that like we're all in echo chambers as well. Like we think that the world is getting more progressive and people are becoming more conscious, but you're only seeing what you want to see. Mm. You know, you only see what like-minded people are retweeting and sharing and posting and you don't see what the other side of the world yeah. thinks or what they see, Yeah. Um, which is dangerous. Yeah. And do you do anything then to like keep your eyes open to that kind of stuff and, you know, to out, go out of your way to kind of delete negative people off social media or try and open your eyes to what's happening on other sides of the world or in different cultures. Do you know what I did at a time, you know, certain people that you might have been friends from with um from school on Facebook or whatever and you see they're posting things, you know, like that they voted voted conservative or like voted for Brexit or whatever and you just want to meet them or you want to mm. follow them. But it's also it's, it's good to see the other side because otherwise, you know, as I said, you're only seeing one side of everything. Mm. Um but also outside of social media as I said earlier, it is important to educate yourself and to make sure that you see both sides of things so you know you're not seeing a biased opinion. Um, and definitely just getting a, a variety of sources yeah. on things. And do you know what's crazy actually on that is I remember, this is a, a bit of a weird story, but <clears throat> I remember when just before the kind of Brexit vote was happening, right, mm-hmm. I'd gone for like a weekend trip. Actually, I think I'd gone to see a football match in France and I drove over with my friends and it was around the time where everything was really heating up and there was a real sense of like everyone's voting in everyone's voting in because that's all you saw in london like vote in vote in vote in but the drive we took from um wherever the Eurostar is um not farnborough um i can't remember what it is anyway wherever the Eurostar is Mm -hmm. the drive from there back to london Mm-hmm. literally all we were seeing was vote out vote out vote out yeah like and that was still on, the south yeah on yeah. cars on but just once you get outside of that london bubble yeah and you know particularly for us living in london you know pretty much our, well for me my whole life you most of your life you do get caught up in it a little bit and mm-hmm. really going out there and seeing how many people were actually backing yeah the brexit vote yeah it was quite an eye-opening thing and even i remember not the not the um the government vote just gone the one before i was in norwich doing some work mm-hmm. and it was the same thing there was just like conservative posters and flyers everywhere yeah. whereas in london it was the complete opposite yeah so i feel it's really like you said, it's really important to although you might not want to see it mm-hmm. you kind of have to yeah. to kind of open your eyes about definitely. it which is definitely a, a, something i've been trying to do actively um so then for you what's next are you have you got plans for like more exhibitions are you planning to you know you've already said about doing some fashion work but expand your photography outside or more outside of the music world than you already have what are your plans i'm trying to focus that's on myself um i've been working with a music magazine that my friend started called push mm-hmm. um which is a new music and youth culture magazine um and i'm a photo editor for that um, but so I'm basically commissioning, directing, producing all the shoots for that. Um, I have done a couple of the shoots for it in the past, but moving forwards, I'm just trying to commission everything off, um, which is nice because it means that I can kind of be on the other side of it. Yeah. And it also means that I can, I can kind of build a platform 
but other photographers might not have that platform already. Yeah, yeah. Um, to kind of give them opportunities to, to work with sick artists and to be able to have their work in print as well, which I know as photographers, yeah. like for photographers, that's quite important. So it's nice to be a bit more hands-off yeah. in that kind of aspect. Um, I've also got a personal project that I've been working on. I'm not going to say what it is because I feel like I've been talking about it for ages and I need to just finish it, put it yeah. out. So keep your eyes peeled okay. for that. Um, but yeah, I've been, I've got, I've got a few kind of like hands-on workshop and talks kind of mm. in the pipelines, um, which is exciting because it means mm. I'll kind of be able to, to help others, especially, especially younger kids as well to kind of like, as I say, kind of own, like hone their craft and learn, learn skills that maybe like schools don't want to teach them. Yeah. And is that a massive, massively important thing for you to want to do in the future is try to, I guess, educate younger people in those ways and in photography and in the kind of industry? A hundred percent. I think that, I think that the kind of facilities that young people need aren't, aren't readily available, um, whether it's in schools or, or whatever, really. Um, and I also feel like a lot of young, young people are told that maybe creative subjects aren't, aren't important and that they need to be going a certain way, but they're just as important as anything else. Mm. So I definitely want to be a part of kind of creating those opportunities, especially for kids that are maybe more disadvantaged than others. Yeah. I think, I think that's very important. So we'll expect to see a Vicky Grout uh, Academy of Photography oh God, in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> now my boyfriend, my boyfriend actually runs two charities. Yeah. Um, he runs a football charity called Football Beyond Borders. Nice. Um, and he also runs um, another youth charity called Youth Futures. Um, and he's he's been helping run run youth clubs in, in South London for the past few years. Um, and he's actually going to be opening up a, a creative studio, which nice. I'm going to be going in, and teaching at. Oh, see. Which should be nice. So that'll be in, in the Brixton area. Yeah. So I wasn't far off. Not far off, I'd no. I almost read the future. Definitely not Vicky Grant Academy, though. But. <laughs> not yet, not yet. <laughs> I'm going to trademark that name. <laughs> um, all right, so to start wrapping up, if you could um, wind back the clock and we could go and speak to a younger version of yourself, so like a, uh. let's say, 14, 15-year-old <laughs> version yeah. of Vicky, before you'd really started taking photography seriously. Mm -hmm. What three bits of advice would you give yourself to start doing from that moment? Three bits of advice. Mm. Like I was I was a very ignorant teenager at 13, 14, as I'm sure most of us probably yeah. were. Um, I don't know, you know. I don't, I don't really like my younger self. I try and lock her away. <laughs> well, there we go. There's probably think, some advice then. Like, yeah. What would you wish someone had told you back then? Like three things. Maybe that I didn't necessarily need to go to uni. Mm. Even though I didn't actually go, I did a foundation year, which because I went b before I was 19, I could still do it for free. So I guess I did get one free year out of it, which mm. was good. Um, but maybe if I just kind of known what I wanted to do earlier on. But no, nah, I don't know, man. I think, I think that's the, I think the process of finding, you know, I think the process of, 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 of trial and error doing things and it not working out and doing that. I think I think that's the that's, that's I think that's the beauty of life and personal growth really. Like you see like, like the butterfly effect. Like yeah. I'm worried that if you go back and do something it will, it will fuck up. Change everything. The whole course of everything. But yeah. Right, fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> take the butterfly effect into uh, consideration <laughs> for you. Um and then final question, what what would you say is your ultimate happiness goal? 
my my ultimate happiness goal. Um, I think it's to create fulfilling work, really, but work that also gives back to other people. I think that's the thing. I think I kind of got stuck in a loop of just doing either like commercial stuff or like just music stuff, and that's why this personal project that I'm putting out, I've been working on it for so long, but I can finally fill it out. Mm. Um, is uh, it definitely touches on issues that are quite close to home. Um, and I think that that's where I need to be. Especially with the platform that I've kind of built for myself. I need to be able to touch on issues that people might not necessarily know about or connect with mm. straight away. Yeah, nice. That's cool, I like that. Um, it's a very nice message in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I think is a good way to sum up everything. So. Thank you for the time. Thank I really you. appreciate it because I know you're super busy <laughs> and you've got lots going on. So I appreciate you taking some time out, even though we had to reschedule a few times between oh us. Oh no, it's both of us though. <laughs> it was both of it's us. Both of us. Both. Um, but we got here in the end yes. and it's been incredible. And, you know, good luck with everything and the personal project. Thank you. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> So there we have it guys that was Vicky's story as I said at the beginning she's so amazing you know for someone so young who's already achieved so much and is surely going to go on to achieve greater things it's great to hear the kind of passion and pride she has in her work and also the work rate is just incredible so as ever thanks for listening if you want to connect with me you can search me at I am Alex Manzi on Twitter Instagram hit me up ask me questions whatever you want to know on there if you want to know any more if you've got guests you'd like to suggest for the podcast it's always great to hear your thoughts so let's make sure we all go out there now and chase our dreams this podcast is produced by unedited